Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. If you've been going through the Bible, reading through the Bible, we're going to take a break today since it's Palm Sunday. And Easter's next Sunday, in case you didn't know that. Can you believe that um, we didn't meet last Easter? Not in person anyway. We're going to this year. If you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 27. I want to begin reading in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, the man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split. And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised And coming out of the graves after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, in Mark's gospel, chapter 15, verse 38, let me read one verse to you. Then... The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And then in Luke chapter 23, verse 45, then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. You may have read that many times and never stopped and thought about it, but I want you to know that object lessons are are one way to really learn truth. In fact, some of the best sermons don't have words. They don't amen that, okay? <laughs> we use object lessons to teach children. You take an object and you teach a truth with them and, and, and you bring, bring that home. Well, did you know when Jesus died, God gave us one of the greatest object lessons in the Bible? Matthew mentions it. Mark mentions it. Luke mentions it, and it's when the curtain or the veil in front of the Holy of Holies is torn. Now, you probably have read that many times, but I don't know that you've ever connected what that really means because there are at least three messages that God is giving us right there when that curtain is torn, and that's what I want to share with you for just a few moments. The very first message is this, ultimate atonement. It shows God's provision. 
Now, in order to understand this, we have to go back to the tabernacle, which was given to Moses. All of the description and the dimensions of the tabernacle was given to Moses as they were leaving Egypt. And they built the tabernacle. And later, it turned into the temple, the same kind of design and only on a bigger scale. And God's desire, the tabernacle was to be right in the middle of all the people. When they're, when they're wandering around in the wilderness, the tabernacle's in the very middle, which shows that God wants to be part of his people and he wants to be the center of their lives. But there was a problem, and the problem was sin, that God could not actually dwell with his people like he wanted to because of our sin. In the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies, and in the Holy of Holies was a box or the Ark of the Covenant. Now, in that Ark of the Covenant were three things that really symbolized from God's side and man's side. There was a bowl of manna. Manna, of course, God gave to the children of Israel, and they were wandering around, and God provided for them and fed them but the Baptists came out in them and they whined and they complained and all of that about what God provided them. So you have a picture of God's faithfulness. You got also an ungrateful heart, a picture of man's un, un, ingratitude. There was also Aaron's rod or his walking stick. Some of you have a walking stick. Maybe you've cut it from a limb or a post. You, you have a walking stick. Well, it pictures... God's authority given through Moses and Aaron. God told the people, Moses and Aaron are your leaders. And they kept rebelling against the leadership. And so God proved to them that they were the leaders when they threw down their rods. And the next day, Aaron's had budded from a dead stick came life and budding. And, and it showed that that God was in authority, God would lead them, and yet they rebelled, so you see both sides. And then also in the ark were the Ten Commandments. Now, you know, when God gave the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai to Moses, he came down, and they were having an idolatrous orgy, and, and Moses got angry, and he threw them down, and they broke, and he got two more. He got another copy, and God told him, put it in the ark of the covenant symbolizing God's holiness and God's standard of righteousness. And yet we know that none of us kept the Ten Commandments and it shows, God, it shows man's sinfulness. So in that ark, you see some symbolism from God and you see some symbolism from man. And on top of that ark were two statues of cherubim. Now I told you before we were going through the Old Testament, cherubim show up when God's holiness is there. In fact, they are the guardians of God's holiness. And so these cherubim on top of the ark are probably looking down. And they're looking down like they're looking into the ark, which says that here's the problem. God can't look on this sin. You're separated from sin. You see the, the cherubim show up when Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden and there's a cherubim put there and then and you, uh, and, uh, excuse me, Isaiah sees them when he gets a vision of God. And so you've got these cherubim representing the holiness of God and they're looking down on the ark and if that's all there was in the, old, in the holy of holies on the ark, it would be bad news. But there's, one, there's something else in there 
And that is on top of the ark was a, a covering called the mercy seat. And it was the lid over the top of the ark. And what happened on this lid symbolized God's solution for us. Because instead of God judging you and me, he brought a substitute in there to cover our sin. Now, you probably know that once a year, the high priest would select a goat that had no blemish and symbolically put his hands on the goat's head, um, putting the sins of the people for the year on him, transferring that nation's guilt. Then the goat would be slain, and the high priest would take the blood of that goat into the Holy of Holies and pour it on the mercy seat. And now you have the cherubim looking through the blood. Now all this is symbolism. And, and, then the, and then the high priest would come out of the Holy of Holies and he would lay his hands on another goat without blemish and it would be led off indicating that the people's sins had been covered ceremonially and symbolically. And the ritual on the Day of Atonement was a beautiful picture of God's plan of forgiveness. But the problem was it was only temporary. And it wasn't complete. It was defective. It never actually solved the problem of separation from God. It just covered it for a while. And so the sacrifices had to be repeated every year until... The ultimate sacrifice, the sinless blood of Jesus was shed on the cross. And God said, Jesus paid it all. Amen. And so he removed that curtain or tore that curtain because Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament tabernacle and temple system. He was the perfect high priest. He had no sin. Listen to what Hebrews 9, 11 says, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He went to the real tabernacle in the presence of God and paid the price. Hebrews says it's a permanent solution. Once for all, eternal redemption. It means it never goes away. And that's why Jesus, just before he died, recorded in John 19, 30, he cried out, it is Finished. Amen. What was finished? The payment has been, has been made. All of this symbolism now has been accomplished by his death. And at the moment that Jesus died, the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies was torn from the top to the bottom. Now, folks, that's significant because it's God saying, it's coming from me to you. Man does not go from here to him. 
That's what all the world religions say. They try to earn their salvation and do it with good works. And God said, I'm removing this. Only, first of all, the symbolism, only God could tear this. And God is saying, I'm coming from you, from me, from heaven to you. Amen. The ultimate atonement, it's been made. It's God's provision. Hebrews 8, 13 says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. When the author of Hebrews wrote that, the temple was still going. He said, it's obsolete. It's about to be done away with. And sure enough, in AD 70, the Romans leveled it. But he said, it's obsolete. You don't need it anymore. The atonement has been made. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Folks, it's very significant, it's huge that that curtain was torn from top to bottom saying, God has provided for us. He was the high priest that entered the real tabernacle having offered the real sacrifice. There are no longer any requirements for ritual sacrifices once and for all. He died for all sin. Well, I hope you get a little more excited about the rest of it. (laughs) The second message, when we, you know, Christianity is a personal, is about a personal relationship with God where we can experience his presence, which leads me to the second message, unhindered access. Here's God pursuing us. Now, If you think about it, everything about the Old Testament system, the Jewish tabernacle and the Jewish temple, it basically said, stay away. You see, any Israelite could go into the outer court as long as they were ritually clean, but there were restrictions and barriers that prevented most people from getting any closer to God. There were courts set aside for women. There were courts set aside for Gentiles. There was a brazen altar upon which the sacrifice had to be made. There were temple steps that led up to the temple. And inside the temple were two main rooms, was the holy place and the most holy place that we call the Holy of Holies. The holy place, only the priests could go in there. And they didn't go in there just to hang out. Now, they could only go in there at certain times to do certain jobs on certain, at certain times, uh, periods. And, and, you know, you just didn't go in there and just casually hang out. You went in there to do God's business and you got out. And then the most holy place, the holy of holies, only the high priest could go in there. And he could go only one day a year. It was the most holy place of Jewish worship. And he could only enter after he had certain robes on and he had gone through certain ritual cleansings and he had to bring the blood of a goat. He he must sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat and that was on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. If anyone else but the high priest goes in there, they're struck dead. If the high priest goes in there and he's not prepared right, he's struck dead. If the high priest goes in there and he doesn't have the blood of the goats, he's struck dead. Everything in that system pretty much screams, stay away, stay away. You're not qualified. 
It was as if the temple itself was a big roadblock, making sure no one could ever come into God's presence. So God had a thick curtain ordered. He told Moses, put a curtain in front of the most holy place so nobody goes in there by accident. It's like God saying, you know, I really desire to have a, a, a relationship with you and to be in your presence, but you can't come to me like you are right now because you have sin and I am a holy God and I cannot commingle with sin. Now, when we think of a curtain, you're probably thinking of your living room drapes, if you still have any, not many people do anymore. Or maybe you're thinking of a shower curtain. You're not even close. In fact, Exodus 26, 31 says it was, it was described as a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, finely twisted linen with cherubim worked into it by a skilled craftsman. Jewish writers tell us that the curtain was 60 feet long or high. That's much higher than this building. 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and four inches thick, the, breadth, the, the width of a man's hand. And I measured my hand this morning, it's four inches. So it's that thick. Now, it took 300 priests to move it. That's a big curtain or a veil. And that's why Matthew tells us that it was torn from top to bottom because no man could ever tear that by himself. He could never tear it from the bottom of to the top. Only God could open that up. And that's what he did. Now Hebrews 10, 19, and 20 says this. Therefore, brethren, having boldness or confidence to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. Having boldness, it speaks of privilege. Or, or, uh, it's, and, and privilege means an advantage held by one person or a group of people. It also means an opportunity to do something special or enjoyable. It is a privilege as a believer to have access to God. Can you, you ever thought about having access or having maybe visiting the Queen of England? To enter those fabled halls of Buckingham Palace, to be escorted by the royal guards in all of their spangled uniforms, to sit in the inner chamber and greeted by the Queen, to have her say, What can I do for you? To know she has the power to grant your request. Meeting the Queen would indeed be a privilege. But I'm sorry to tell you, it's probably never going to happen to you <laughs> or me. Because the Queen's a very important person. And you and I are not even British subjects. We live on the other side of the pond. We do not have the standing in the sense to gain an audience with the Queen of England. That privilege does not belong to us. But in the eyes of God, you and I have a standing through the blood of Jesus to enter the throne room of heaven. 
That's why Hebrews means when he says that Jesus opened a way for us through the curtain by his death on the cross. He tore down the wall that stood between God and us. And it's like God said, come on in. Unhindered access to God. We have a standing through the blood of Jesus to enter the throne room of heaven compared to the old system that kept men out. This truly is a new way, as the Hebrew writer says. And but not only that, he calls it a living way. We serve a risen, living Savior. He's the high priest. We have a living way to the throne room of God. Amen. Amen. He is alive and we have that privilege, but Jesus' sacrifice removes our guilt and cleanses our conscience so that we can serve and enjoy God's personal presence. We are a personal friend of God's own son. We are a member of God's own family. We're a citizen of heaven. We have standing. We have advantage. We have privilege. We have entrance. And every blood-bought child of God, born-again believer has that same privilege. You have an all-access pass to God. (laughs) You don't even have to ask to go in. Our Heavenly Father will not turn us away. It's a message that the torn curtain has told us. It doesn't get any better. He's saying, come on in. Listen, we don't have to have a priest to get to God. That's why we believe in the priesthood of all believers. You don't have to come through me to talk to God. You don't have to go to an earthly priest to confess your sin. You don't have to go to an earthly priest to talk to God. He said, you come on in by the blood of Jesus. You come on in. My dad's sitting right here on the front row. He's still awake, too. <laughs> he doesn't go to sleep because he knows I won't buy him lunch later. Now nah, I'm teasing you. Let me tell you about my dad. My dad was a pastor for 35, well, longer than 35 years, but I can remember. He told me, he said, anytime you need me, I'm available. I don't care who's in my office. I don't care if the president's in my office. You come on in. If any of you ever come to see me for any reason, I normally have my phone on vibrate. And if it goes off, I'm going to look to make sure it's not my wife or my children. Because if it's my wife or my children, I'm going to say, I'm sorry to interrupt this, but I need to take this for just a moment. You know why? Because they have privilege. I I hate to tell you this, but they trump you. (laughs) I want you to see that's what the torn curtain means. God says you have privilege. You can come boldly. You don't have to make an appointment. You can come anytime, anywhere, as often as you like. It's unhindered. You have access to God. When we're told in the New Testament to pray without ceasing, basically means you can just talk to God all the time if you want. You don't have to bow your heads and close your eyes. Just just have an attitude of I'm in communion with God. I can talk to him anytime. 
So you have the ultimate final atonement has been made. And we have unhindered access to God. But there's still another message to this torn curtain, from this torn curtain. And that is that we have unending assurance of God's promise. Hebrews 6.19 says this, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever. We have an anchor for the soul. Now, you know what an anchor is. An anchor holds a ship in spot, but, it, but if an anchor won't grab the bottom or if, it, if it's not strong enough to hold the ship, it's useless. If you put an anchor in sand, it's useless. He's saying that we have Jesus Christ who's gone behind the veil for us, who's paid the price for us, who's anchored in there forever as the ultimate high priest because he has never sinned. And he said, he's the anchor for our soul. <laughs> because Jesus can't be moved. We can't be moved. In 1834, Edward Moat wrote a poem that later became one of our favorite hymns. First verse goes like this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Now listen to the second verse. It's based on Hebrews 6 that I just read. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. I know that most of you know that you've been saved. You love Jesus. Even though our love's imperfect, we love the Lord. We believe in him. We believe that he saved us from our sin. But if you're like me, occasionally you look in the mirror and you think, boy, I still fall so short to God's standard. I thought some things I shouldn't have thought. I said some things I should have said. I, I failed in an area that I shouldn't, or whatever. And you start to condemn yourself. Well, let me tell you some good news. Down deep inside, we know that, that we fail, but, but we have hope and assurance that our shame cannot erase. You sin cannot erase the salvation that God has given you. We have a hope that is an anchor for our soul. We can rest because our anchor can hold against any storm. Even when our conscience is guilty, maybe the Holy Spirit does convict us, but that's why we're told 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, confess your sin because he's continuously faithful and continuously just to continuously forgive you. You may not feel like you were a very good Christian this week, you're still anchored in Jesus. 
It's an unending assurance. It's God's promise. When James Stewart preached on this topic, he, he used an illustration about a, an old Scottish believer who went to a church one day feeling down because of his sin. And the communion plate was passed and he refused to partake of the elements because he thought himself unworthy. He saw a young woman in the congregation who also refused to partake and she broke down into tears. Stuart tells what happened next. He said, her tears jarred this Scottish believer back to the truth of the gospel he himself needed to recall. And in a whisper that could be heard throughout the church, he said, take it, Lassie, take it. It's meant for sinners. And he partook of it. Yeah, we're all sinners. For those of you who may be a guest today, if you came in here looking for a perfect place, I hate to burst your bubble, but on every chair and every, uh, every row today is a sinner saved by the grace of God. That's the deeper meaning of this curtain being torn. God doesn't just put it back up and say, oh, you blew it. Oh, he tore it. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. It's a promise. <laughs> so don't let your sins keep you away from God. He said, Jesus paid it all. Come on in. And I'm going to hold on to you forever. That's a pretty simple message, isn't it? But it's so profound. J.C. Ryle summarized the true meaning of the torn curtain in one sentence. He said, and I quote, our sins may be many and great, but the payment made by our great substitute far outweighs them all. The cross reveals the heart of God. When Jesus died, God preached a sermon without words when he tore the curtain. He said, it's been paid. You're welcome to come in. I won't ever let you go. Why wouldn't people not respond to that? If you're watching online, if you see this on television, if you're in this room and you've never received Christ, I've got great news for you. God says it doesn't matter what sin you've committed, the price has been paid for it. You ask God to forgive you. Why? Because Jesus died on the cross for our sin and he rose, a dead, he rose again conquering death. Did y'all see that part in Matthew about some of the saints coming back to life? Would you like to know what all that means? I don't have a clue. Other than, I do know this. I do know this. It shows that death was conquered. See, I, I, I want to know. I want to know who they were. I want to know what their family saw or whoever saw them. I want to know what they looked like. I want to know how long they stayed alive. And I want to know what they said. But God says, you're going to have to wait on that one for a while. He conquered death. Was after the resurrection of Jesus. He was the first fruits. Then these others came and they went out speaking. But all I know is that 
that curtain's been torn. The access to God, it's a new covenant in his blood that we celebrated just a moment ago. And if you don't know Jesus, you can know him today. You don't have to join our church to be a believer. You've never heard me ever say, you've got to join South Crest Baptist. You better be part of this church or you're not going to heaven. That's blasphemy. You have to join Jesus. And you can do it now. Would you pray with me? Lord, I, I pray for those even now who may finally have realized that they don't have to get good enough to come to you. They just come with their sin and you will forgive them. That Jesus paid the price for our sin. That you welcome us to come. And Lord, some now even feel that tug at their heart. They feel that urgency that you're bringing them to you. Would you just invite them to you? I pray that they would seek your forgiveness and believe in their heart and place their faith and trust in Jesus even now. Invite Christ into their life and commit themselves to him. Pray for the believers. Some of them today probably thinking, you know, I'm just not very close to the Lord. Help them to see that you still hold on to them, that you still love them, that you forgive them and put them back up on their feet. Pray for those that need a church. Lord, I, I feel sorry for those who are just wandering around, don't have a place. Help them to find a family, to be part of it, be unashamedly part of it. Pray for those that need to be baptized, like these three this morning who obediently, unashamedly said, I trusted Jesus as my Savior. I follow him. So Lord, whatever the commitment is, bring people to you. Thank you for being the anchor for our soul. I, if you're watching us online, you can either hit that connect button and people will help you now or you can take your texting device and text to this number, 474747. One word, living hope. Don't put a space in it. Just make it one word, living hope. Give us the information, we'll call you. You can put prayer requests there. You can do that in this room. There's a card in the seat pocket in front of you you can use. You can put prayer requests. You can let us know the commitment. And after we're dismissed here in a moment, some of us will be here at the front. To, we can even talk to you now about a commitment to Jesus and, to, and pray with you and help you. Whatever, if you want to join, I, I, whatever the, God's leading you to do, we're here to help you. I'd be glad to visit with you after we're dismissed. So Lord, I pray for those today who are making commitments to you that you'd be the anchor in their life. Thank you, God, for inviting us Thank you for opening the door for us to come to you through Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.